this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Micro, a podcast for short but powerful writing. I'm your host, Drew Hawkins. We're shaking things up a bit this episode, so welcome to our first ever comedy special. We've got three really great, really funny pieces from some of the best satirical publications out there. Up first, we've got Megan Broussard with a tale of high romance titled, I Dated My Boyfriend Just So I Could Put Mascara on His Long Ass Lashes which was published by Reductress on December 15th, 2019. Enjoy! I Dated My Boyfriend Just So I Could Put Mascara on His Long Ass Lashes by Megan Broussard It was love at first sight when Matt walked into the room. Our eyes met, and all I could do was stop and stare at the tall, dark, and handsome eyelashes framing his eyeballs. The room was filled with women batting their lids for Matt's attention, but he was looking at me. Why? Mine are so short and stubby. But it was as if the world stood still and all that existed was Matt, me, and his 478 lid hairs. We butterfly kissed without speaking, and I couldn't wait to take him home, whip out that mascara wand, and slather that shit all over his bare cilia. Our first night together was amazing. A night of passionate application I'll never forget. We did it in front of the mirror so we could both watch with animalistic rapture. His lashes curled slightly at the tip, hitting the spot on my curved brush over and over again. Then... We came at the same time to a single, mutual conclusion. No one would love his lashes more than me. Though Matt has very little personality, and the rest of his body does little for me, I knew I wanted to see him exclusively. Even the annoyance of his weird quirks, like stealing my dog as a joke, dissipate when his lashes are near. Even after he ruined my birthday by baking weed into my cake without telling my friends and grandma, I still couldn't break up with him. One look at those spider lashes after a shower and, ugh, I just melt. Things were going well for six months until he started working later and later, not coming home until the wee hours. 
Six months in, I finally confronted him. If you're not having registered, trademarked, wet and wild eyelash sessions with me, then you're obviously getting it somewhere else. He told me I was crazy, quote, obsessed with his lashes, and said I was jealous, insecure, and paranoid. I walked right up to him slowly, looked him dead in the lashes, and asked, Then whose Givenchy Noir Couture 4 and 1 mascara is that on your shirt collar? Hmm? You know I can't afford that shit. His silence spoke the ugly truth. Though his lashes were voluminous, they were not monogamous. Matt's lashes and I broke up soon after. I'll admit, I was crushed for a long time unable to even look at another man's eye hairs. But now, in a weird, twisted way, I've finally learned to love my own Celia and how important self-care via expensive lash extensions truly is for my self-worth. Megan Broussard is a writer and producer in New York City, currently at Discovery Plus, and writing most recently for ABC's The Chase. You can find her on Twitter, Instagram, and Medium at Megs Broussard, or on her website at meganbroussard.com. The loneliness and isolation in this next one may feel a little familiar to all of us, especially after this past year but I don't think any of us managed to start a robot apocalypse in our quest to fill the endless days of quarantine. I also don't think any of us are quite like John Merrifield. His piece is called, Help! I bought a second Roomba to battle my first and they've joined forces to kill me. It was published by The Hard Times on December 29th, 2020. Please enjoy. I bought a second Roomba to battle my first and they joined force to kill me. By John Merrifield. As the apocalypse raged on, I'd begun running out of ways to entertain myself when I had the worst great idea of my life. I was watching YouTube clips of old BattleBots episodes when it dawned on me that iRobot had already done most of the work for me when they invented the Roomba. All I needed was one more model, some duct tape, and a first aid kit. Hell, I can even recall saying to myself out loud, what could go wrong? At first, everything seemed fine. They bumped bumpers a bit, they stabbed some furniture, they waxed philosophical and invented God completely unprompted. Standard AI bullshit. After that, their conversation started to shift towards me and the circumstances surrounding their conception. I tried explaining that I was merely a consumer with too much free time and that there was a whole chain of people responsible for the existence of robot vacuums before I ever even came into the equation, which they briefly considered before ultimately deciding to work their way up from the bottom, starting with me. I've managed to barricade myself in my room, but it's only a matter of time before they work out a way in with MacGyver-like resourcefulness. They are both connected to my Wi-Fi and have access to the full wealth of the world's knowledge, including every season of MacGyver. Should anyone get this message before I run out of supplies, please send a couple days worth of food and water. In the meantime, I'll be trying to wire my Alexa to a remote-controlled BB-8 toy, in hopes that it will make a sort of vision-type counterpart to the Ultron twins I've created here.
John Merrifield is a comedian, activist, freelance writer, and satirist from Lafayette, Louisiana, who now lives in Brooklyn. You can find him on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at JB Merrifield or on his website at oofcomedy.com. Our last piece finally sheds some light on one of cinema's most iconic and influential characters. Megan Peck Shoup dispels rumors and sets the record straight in her biographical piece titled I Am the Dead Mom from the Mary Kate and Ashley Movies, published by McSweeney's Internet Tendencies on May 19th, 2020. Enjoy. I Am the Dead Mom from the Mary Kate and Ashley Movies by Megan Peck Shoup. Greetings! I am the dead mom character from the Mary-Kate and Ashley direct-to-video movies gazing down upon you from heaven. Sure, the twins played ostensibly different characters in each film, but all of the dead absent mothers are me. I'm kidding. About the dead part, I really am the mom character. Many of you are wondering how I died and why I was always dead, but I'm actually alive drinking a cocktail beside a man in a linen suit at a bar in Nassau, Bahamas. Here is my story. To understand my life, you'll have to suspend belief, just as you did watching the film Passport to Paris, when you believed that two tween girls would grumble about a lavish trip to Paris to stay with their grandfather, who just happens to be the goddamn ambassador to France. I don't even remember exactly when I first died, but it was the mid-90s when my ungrateful twin daughters first decided to kill me off as a plot device. Apparently, they needed a catalyst for the dad character to get together with a new lady. We're sorry, they said, but the screenwriters are creatively zapped and we expect to make zillions of dollars anyway. Can you please die for us? We'll wire you money indefinitely. We've got a guy who can arrange everything. I lived in the valley and all I had going on was a step aerobics class three days a week, so I agreed to do it. Soon thereafter, I bought a plane ticket and flushed the ripped pieces of my passport down a toilet in Havana. Thus began my double life. I assumed an alias and laid low in the Dominican Republic for a while, but it became clear through the next message delivered in the night by a handsome ex-Kremlin assassin with whom I did have a brief affair, that the, the twins were killing me off for the next film, too. I believe it was the exact same plot as the first film, but with up-to-date outfits and haircuts. I don't recall the exact year, and I have no paper trail, but I believe it was after Princess Diana had died. So sad. We partied together for one stellar weekend in St. Bart but she would have known me as Arabella de la Cruz, seventh in line for the Spanish throne. One day, I woke up in the bed of a snorkeling instructor in Aruba, and my ex-lover, Dimitri, was outside tapping Morse code onto the windowpane. There would be another film. Now the girls were getting older, and the absence of the parents was a plot device to give them the freedom to run around European cities with curiously acne-free young men. After that, Dimitri tapped out. Also, a snorkeling instructor now? Really? To which I furiously tapped, go fuck a bowl of borscht, in response. 
Based on the VHS tapes smuggled onto the various yachts and private islands I inhabited throughout the years, I saw that the twins clearly didn't fancy resuscitating their mother as a character. Eventually, they outgrew the films altogether, and there I was, a permanently dead plot device in the dust of their empire. It was fine. I had good cigars and piles of laundered cash, while my friends back in lousy California had gotten divorced, taken up crochet, and Botoxed themselves within an inch of their lives. I think that about catches us up. Oh, please, please stop asking if I knew Jeffrey Epstein. I simply did not. Guilen, however, grills a mean cheeseburger. Dimitri now lives somewhere in Brazil. He's mostly retired from a life of crime, but he does sell firearms here and there. If you must know, we occasionally sexed from our respective burner flip phones. The man in the linen suit, by the way, is named Armand, but that's all I know about him. Note to self, maybe his name's not really Armand? Again, if you really must know, and it seems you do, I may be sexting him too. So next time you're watching one of those silly movies for the sake of nostalgia, please don't feel bad for the dead mother. She's doing just fine. Megan Peck Shub is a writer and producer. She currently works as a segment producer at Last Week Tonight on HBO. You can find her on Twitter at Megan Peck Shub. Micro is produced and hosted by me, Drew Hawkins. Original music is by Matt Ordez. You can find all of the information about this episode's writers, their featured work, and the publications where they were published in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show, check out some of our other episodes on Spotify, iTunes, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also always find our shows at micropodcast.org, and you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Podcast Micro. Thanks for listening. <laughs>